kids? <laughs> Welcome to my world. <laughs> you guys did great. A conversation happened between a pastor and a farmer. The pastor was out visiting this farmer out in his field, catching up with him. The pastor had some financial uh, things on his mind as far as uh, raising support in the church and all those kinds of things. And so he was just having a candid conversation with his friend, the farmer. And he said, hey, let me ask you something. Uh, he said, if you had uh, 200 bucks, would you give the Lord 100 of it? And he said, yeah, I think I would. He said, well, if you had two cows, would you give the church or the Lord one of them? I don't know if the church would know what to do with the one cow. If that happens here, the small family knows exactly what to do with that cow because I have to buy two gallons of milk every time I go home, it seems. So if there's any cow people out there, I'm just throwing that out there for you. Just kidding. Please don't. <laughs> the pastor says to the farmer, he says, well, if you had two pigs... Would you give one? And the, the farmer goes, no, that's not fair. You know I have two pigs. See what he did there? The, the, the pastor was asking him for things that the farmer could easily commit because he didn't have them. So it was easy for him to say, yeah, sure I would. The second he got to the area where he actually had that, then it became a real commitment. As we've been saying for the last several weeks, as we've been going through our spiritual discipline series, that most of us desire to be a person or to do some things that we don't yet do that in a, in a in a strange sense i feel like i preach to the choir every time i get together with a vast majority of christians because we don't necessarily um walk around thinking we've accomplished it all I, sometimes that's the character caricature and sometimes we preachers we come to a text and we feel like that's the person we've got to get through uh, the word of God through and penetrate their heart and no doubt that person exists don't get me wrong we we've got arrogance all around us in society do we not but but the person that I encounter the most is somebody who already feels a little bit like yeah, I know who I'm supposed to be I just can't seem to get there and, and perhaps that's a bit of a shift in our society. Perhaps there's a lot of factors in how we're being brought up these days and all these kinds of things where there's a lack of confidence and a suffering of self-worth and all of those kinds of things. All of those factors could be coming into that. But the reality is, is that most of us know, like we've been saying, I should know more Bible than I know. I, I want to be able to help people with the word of God more than I feel capable of. Or I do need to spend some more time in prayer with the Lord. I don't feel like I've, I've, I concentrate enough or I commit enough time or I, I think to have this conversation with him more often. And then uh, two weeks ago, we started talking about this idea of building or maintaining community in a church where as we learn to truly fellowship with one another, as we truly relate to one another, we all go, hey, I could probably be a better friend. I, I could probably extend myself a little bit more. I could meet somebody new. It's just awkward. And I don't really know if I, if they want to meet me and we come up with excuses and different things. Most of us have this goal in our mind of who we should be or want to be and seem to fall short of it. Well, as we get to the fourth part of this and sort of the closing um, message in these spiritual disciplines, uh, it's important to understand that living generously is an area that we can't re afford to rely on good intentions. Some of those other things that I mentioned 
aren't things that we can afford to rely on good intentions either, but we can kind of sweep them under the rug. We can kind of go unnoticed. We show up on a Sunday or we talk to some of our Christian friends, and as long as we've got that Christian smile on our face and we can say everything's going fine, no one would be any the wiser. But the problem with not living as generously as we believe we should or as the Lord is leading us to be and we, we start to rely on those good intentions is that the recipients can't cash that check. Now the timing and, and sort of the tone of this message I just want to set up a little bit here um, without sounding too apologetic because that would be definitely my natural disposition. Um, but I, I want you guys to know where this message is coming from because I struggle with the timing of this. Uh, if this had happened last Sunday, I was already feeling awkward about having to talk about this idea of how we approach things, particularly with our finances, so close to Christmas. I, I know that's a tactic. I know that it's the way that charities and other things happen to. They know the data. And contrary to my understanding, this is sort of the most generous opportunity for charities to uh, benefit from. I would imagine that as people are maxed out on credit cards and getting gifts for all their kids and all this kind of stuff, that that, that opportunity to give the extra 25 or the extra 100 or something like that would be really lacking. But the data says the opposite, that this time of year, people are a little bit more open to opening their wallets. So I know that there's not a lot I can do about the timing of this to seem as though it's taking advantage of the season, and that's certainly not, not the case. This goes back to our desire as a church, even our stated desire as a, the membership of the church and those that filled out a survey some time ago and everything, that we need to be challenged and, and taught more about the disciplines of our faith. And so we set out to lay this out and the timing of this after finishing First Peter, that sort of thing, blah, blah, blah. So we're here now. I promise next week will be more Christmassy. So hold on tight, please. The other thing I want to mention is just about the tone of this. Um, if this were a message, again, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit on this, but if if, if this were a message out of desperation, we would have preached this message six months ago over and over and over again. I'll let that stand for what it is. The reality is, is that we always want to teach this as, as much as I can control it, as much as the leadership has say in what comes from this pulpit over and over for the next however long. We want to be able to teach these things out of spiritual maturity, not never out of desperation. The timing of this could always be the thing where someone's reacting to giving's low. Go talk about giving. And that's not the way to build a sustaining uh, 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 lifestyle or environment in a ministry of generosity. This is better birthed out of God's people doing what God is leading them to do in the way and the manner that he's leading them to do it. They're faithful to him and, and under no other compulsion by human drive or timing of the season or any of those kinds of things. But why does this matter so much? Why take the time to go through this if it's not just for the request for a handout? Because Luke twelve thirty four says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Kent Hughes, in commenting on this verse, says, God can have our money and not our hearts. That is possible. But he cannot have our hearts without having our money. That's the reality. 
as you and I grow in our faith, we, we want to and we need to, we should move from being a transactional giver to a transformational giver. The Lord has always wanted your heart more than your money. That's proven over and over and over in Scripture. Even back in the Old Testament, when it was all about rule and law and give and give and give. It was always about the heart. And since our hearts are in our wallets, that's where he focuses much of his calling on our lives. That's the nature of it. Living charitably has obvious and proven benefits. We see it all around us. Those who are able to give and, and, and desiring to give, we just see a different affect on them and we know that it, that it has a personal profound impact on their life. And of course we know it has a life, uh, an impact on the lives of those that need that assistance. But this doesn't happen passively, like us being better Bible students or appliers of the scriptures or more conversational with the Lord in our prayer or better friends and better connection. These things aren't just going to happen passively. That's why this is in the category of a spiritual discipline. Going back to February of uh, this year, if you can think back to um, as the world was going wonky on us. Um, we were in Second Corinthians, we were in chapter 8, and Paul was talking to the Corinthian church about their need to start seeing their opportunities and the needs and the other things around them uh, differently, and they need to develop more compassion for those things going on. And he sets up for them an example, a surprising example that they're supposed to look after. I'm going to take us back to 2 Corinthians 8, and we're just going to read the first five verses, we'll, we'll do them in two different sections to be reminded of what Paul was saying to the Corinthian believers. He says in verse 1, he says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. So the group of people he's talking about is a collection of Christians who are in Macedonia, and they've done something that he wants to point out to the Corinthians. Verse 2, For in a severe test of affliction... Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, those two things combined, he's saying, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So Paul wants to set up the Macedonians to be an extreme case of conviction for the Corinthian believers who hadn't quite wrapped their head around how to give of themselves more for the needs of others. So instead of Paul going and saying, I've run into some people that can write some really large checks. You guys need to think like that because you have similar means. Instead, he goes in the opposite direction. He says, I was really caught off guard with my time in Macedonia. As they were in their deep, deep poverty. We said that uh, out of the, word, the words that uh, are translated for us, we've adopted back in the... I want to say early 1900s, there was a word bathysphere. There was this vessel that would come when submarining was happening. It would get to the depths of the ocean. This all comes from what Paul was trying to describe with how broke the Macedonians were. So their charity was a result of a lifestyle that was lived in poverty. Despite their extreme depths of that poverty. That combined with their abundance of joy resulted in a wealth of generosity on their part. So let's continue in verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord 
than by the will of God to us. In Paul's words, he's saying, the time that I spent with the Macedonians, he's, he's even giving us a clue that he tried to refuse them and basically say, I know you're giving according to your means, but this extra, this abundance, where does this, you don't have, you can't give this much. I've lived with you guys. I know who you are. Slept in your homes. You can't do this. He's, he's alleviating what he thinks is their guilt. And you might remember that we said way back when that as he was saying, you can't give this much, they said, you can't stop us. They're our brothers and sisters. They're hurting. They need our assistance. We won't let them suffer. And they understood suffering. The reality is this, is that you and I have an extremely personal view of money. Even those of us that say, I don't really think about money. I don't live for it. I don't care about it that much. We have an extremely personal view of finances. It's, it's shaped by our background. It's shaped by perhaps our upbringing or some of the life lessons that we've learned. We've perhaps seen abuses right under our nose. Where we're like, I never want to be like that. Or perhaps we've gone through times where it was so lean that you said, if I ever get back on my feet, I'm going to do this and this and this for myself. And you've never turned away from that because now you can provide. Those things come from some deeply held personal views of finances of what the dollar is meant to uh, provide for us or how we're supposed to handle it. Even those of us that would say, I don't really cling to it. It's not an idol in my life. That comes from an extremely personal view. We research how to spend it, how to invest it. We hear experts on the radio or on YouTube or things. We Sometimes we look for ways in which we can bank for something in the future to be set up and prepared for. We have our various experiences. Perhaps we've studied the scripture. We know that there's the great debate in the church today about whether or not the tithe, which is defined as 10%, if 10% of our income goes back to the Lord... If the, is that still for a New Testament church? Because that's very clearly laid out in the Old Testament. Is that still new, still for the New Testament? So Christians debate this. Pastors wrestle with this. They come to passages of Scripture to lay out and make a case. All of these things come from experience or research or personally held experiences. Actually, if you look in the Old Testament, you were to see that the tithe wasn't the stopping point that the Lord had had so many other requirements for his people then that as guilt offerings or preparing for this festival or this offering or something like that, that in some cases that the Old Testament Israelite could be responsible for up to 25% of their income. We need to be willing to regularly ask the Lord as we look in the mirror, am I using money to serve me or to serve God? Now, the Bible is extremely blunt on this subject, so much so that I'm uncomfortable with it because I want a middle ground in so many ways. I want that nuance. I want to be, eh, where does this go? The Bible is very, very clear in the fact that money will either be a danger in our lives or an incredible blessing in our lives and the lives of others. We, we aren't ambivalent on this subject. The scriptures will lay out the case for us in the danger category. First Timothy 6 says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 
It's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Ecclesiastes 5. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, here's the exchange. The reason why we can let go of that love of money is because he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So there's incredible warning. This is just a sample that the scriptures would say we got to be really, really careful with how our hearts can get wrapped around this object in our lives. But there's blessing to be had as well. Deuteronomy 15, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. There's a freedom that comes with our availability and our willingness to let these things go because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. One of the more popular passages that we use to wrestle with this idea is is the 10% thing still alive in church comes from Malachi 3 verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and therefore put me to the test says the Lord of hosts if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no no need. Acts 20, 35, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. You and I have an extremely personal view of money. This subject need not be as taboo in our life as we've made it. Yeah, there's some decorum to have. There's, we have to be careful. We don't walk around talking about what each, each other earns. Hey, how much are you pulling in this year and stuff? There's some places we don't need to go. But this idea of where our hearts are at with finances should not be such a taboo subject in the Christian faith if Jesus is saying that's where your heart is. If he is saying your heart lives there more than you even realize, we got to talk about this. I know I need to talk about this. So we all have this personal view, but we all need our personal view adjusted by an incredible gift that's been given to us in Christ, and that is a new identity. As we understand who we are in Christ, who we were before Christ, and how that has transformed and is transforming, we start to move that into all these areas of our lives, these disciplines, these things that have a grip on us, and we say, well, how am I supposed to view that now that I have a new identity? The scriptures would say that as you and I were born in our sin, we were technically born in Adam. Adam, the first man, the one who failed first and therefore passed sin upon all the generations. We who were dead in our trespasses and sins, we were born in Adam. Now, the Bible would refer to that specifically in Romans as the old man. So when you say, yeah, my old man and I are, you know, Now we start thinking in spiritual context going, the old me, who I used to be. The old man has a very personal view of money as well. The old you, the old me, we see this idea of finances a certain way. We did see it. That would sound things like my value is in what I can achieve. My my value, my worth is in what I've been able to earn or provide for other people. I take great pride in being able to take care of myself or those that are depending on me. There's language like that that comes out of when we start to go, well, that doesn't sound wrong. It doesn't sound harmful to be responsible. 
But who's the center in all of those statements? Me. What I value is in what I can do. What I deserve for me. That's the old man. But fortunately, thankfully to God, we have an opportunity. We have a new identity given to us. First Timothy 6, 9 says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. We start to understand that that is the position. Uh, The old man's feet are, are trapped in that cement. He was wet at first and he thought, I can get a handle on this. And all of a sudden the cement dried because I fell into that temptation, into a snare because of what I thought this would provide for me. But we've been given a new identity. The new you, the new me, the new man, the new woman says in Christ, my value is in what has been achieved, what has been earned, what has been provided for me through Christ. It, it, it removes me from the center of my existence. It removes me from the center as the focal point of how money should serve me, how, how, how living charitably or being a, a giving person, how it should serve me. We have to be careful to think, to, to be um, aware of the fact that just because somebody is doing outward acts doesn't mean it's not for them. That is part of the trickiness and the subtlety of the human heart. The new you means a new identity and a new outlook. In particular, when we come to this idea of stewardship and generosity and giving, what does the new identity say to us? I'm going to give us just four indicators here of of a new identity. I'm going to move through them fairly quickly. And uh, there'll be some caveats that you'll want to hear. You'll want to say, yeah, but it sounds like we need to talk more about this and we, we won't be able to now. But this theme will be played out in our time together as a church going forward. So we will definitely revisit some of these things for clarification. But in terms of our new identity in Christ, it starts with you and I going, I was made. I, I'm a creature. Our identity as a created one instantly puts us in a humble position of saying, I don't know how to do my life the best. I I don't know what I need. I don't know how this whole thing around me works and and rotates and does all those kinds of things because I didn't make it. I didn't make me. I am one who was made. Therefore, somebody else has the authority, has the smarts, has the experience, has all those things that I need to tap into. But what do we do so often when we lose that identity? I can keep this spinning. I can control. I know what I need better than anybody else. Our identity as a creature under, helps us understand that there are things at work that we don't know how to comprehend. We don't know how to keep going. I want to play a part. I want to be involved in something that supports what the creator is trying to accomplish. Second aspect of our identity would be that we would see ourselves understanding that we are still practically sinners. Positionally, we're something else. This old man, new man thing is not one of those sort of eh, morphs or it evolves. When we are new in Christ, we, 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 uh, we, we just saw this in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has 
passed away. It's not the old is passing away. Positionally speaking, in Christ, it's gone. I remember hearing a preacher way back when talking about this idea of financial temptation and things and understanding that the old man is dead. He's like, go up to a coffin and say, hey, buddy, you want to make a million bucks? There's no temptation for that guy. He's dead to it. There's no reaction. This is positionally who we are in Christ. We've been given a new uh, identity. We've been given a new life that no longer hungers for those things. But I still do continue to practice sin, even though its power is rendered empty in my life. As a sinner, I'm easily seduced by greed of, of different kinds. I may not necessarily be what we would refer to as a money grubber. I may not be the one that's working triple overtime in order to have the nicest of everything. But greed still owns my heart in a lot of different ways because I'm not yet fully rescued from who I am in the old man. Third identity marker for us here is that like the Macedonian believers, we would see ourselves as willing sufferers. Now, this theme is kind of followed us through 2 Corinthians and 1 Peter as we've been walking through, especially the, the, the 2020 that we've had. I was talking to a younger person this morning and the phrase that they said was kind of weird. And I was like, that's going to be our identity for, for, uh, for 2020. Kind of weird. Shows up on a bumper sticker, I want credit. Kind of weird. I'll give it to you, credit, actually. The Macedonians understood that my best life wasn't going to be here. All they had to do was look around. Like, if, if, this is, if this is heaven, then God didn't put any time into this. This isn't going so well for us. They embraced this identity of being a willing sufferer, not one that went out and created suffering in their life in order to prove their religious fire and duty, but they accepted what came their way. C.S. Lewis says it this way. He says, if our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say that they're too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Notice that we're not saying you never do anything that's joyful. You never plan that family vacation, do any of those sorts of things. It's just our mindset is, I shouldn't expect to avoid areas of discomfort. I shouldn't expect that in order to be a blessing to somebody else, that it won't cost me something. Even David said, as King David, as he came into the temple, he says, I will not worship God in a way that didn't cost me anything. Our identity as sufferers will do a lot to shape our finances. The fourth identity marker here is exact counter to the identity of being a positional sinner, and that is that we are positional saints. We are practicing sinners still, but, but the power of that, the, the, the inevitability of giving in to temptation, all that's been removed from us because we are new creations in Christ. As saints, we are rescued, redeemed, and forgiven. If, if calling yourself a saint is new to you because you're part of a religious tradition that has saints set apart and you pray to them and they've done so many things right and there's these other things they've had to prove in order to be saints, that needs to start wiping out of your mind because the scriptures say that as you and I have been rescued and redeemed and made new in Christ, we've been given that identity of being saints in his family. 
and in his kingdom. And the reality is that we all spend the currency of the kingdom that we dwell in. I want to set up for our imagination this morning two different kingdoms. There's, you put your own name in this, but in my life, there's a kingdom of Brent and a kingdom of God. Both kingdoms compete for my attention. They compete for my investment. I'm always studying the, 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 the lifestyle and the culture of each of those kingdoms, wishing I could live fully in the kingdom of God and yet finding that so often I fight in the kingdom of me. The kingdom of me expenditures, the way I invest in that, are often reactions to my felt needs, the things that I think I need in the moment. Or we might say, I've had a bad day, I think I'm going to go spend my money on this because I'm tired of the world kicking me in the teeth and I deserve something. Or I, I spend my money in a way in ways that protect my insecurities or give you a different impression of who I am or what's going on in my life. I, I can spend money on the fortress of the, of the big wall outside of my kingdom so that you can look back and go, hmm, pretty impressive. So often the kingdom of me expenditures are attention-seeking, insecurity-protecting, reactionary expenses. Jesus, in a parable in Matthew 13, gives us two indications of a different mindset for a different kingdom. He begins in verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like the treasure in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in a search in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, I know there are some literalists in the crowd. Anytime we've taught these things like through membership class, we always have to hand, we have to have to interview and, and, and answer the, uh, the literalists in the crowd who sees that in the parable and says, isn't that dishonest? He, he saw that there was a treasure in a field and he goes, oh, I don't want to tell anybody about this. So he buries it again and he goes and sells all he has and he goes and he knocks on the field owner's door and says, hey, I was just wondering how much do you want for the field? Knowing that what was hiding and it was worth way more than he was going to ask. So he gladly shells it out and pay. I understand. Make some of us twitch. But Jesus isn't condoning every action in this. He's, parables aren't true. They're fictitious and they, they paint a picture to emphasize a different point than the specifics. What is the point that is true in both of these scenarios is that somebody found something of greater worth than what they possessed and they liquidated everything else they had in their possession in order to get that thing. Why would Jesus teach this? Why would Jesus say this? He's been introducing, especially in Matthew since chapter 5, he's been introducing the arrival of a whole new system of, of ethics and a, a whole new mindset of what the kingdom of God is and how it operates. And he's obliterating religious excuse. He's obliterating religious um, practice and the pats on our back that come with doing the bare minimum. And he says, no, really what we're talking about is a kingdom mindset who sees greater value in this one thing that, that makes everything you've put in your possession pale in comparison to where you go, oh, I thought this stuff was great, but that is even better. And this is what Jesus is saying is the, the kingdom of, of God expenditures 
often are from people who are opportunistic, not to capitalize for themselves, but they're looking for opportunities to live in that kingdom. That man going through the field was looking for something, and when he discovered it, he acted on it. The man looking for the greater pearl was looking for something, and when he saw it, he acted on it. The kingdom of, of Jesus' expenditures are, are opportunistic. They're eager to help. But they are also balanced and judicious. Now, if, I love this point, and I love emphasizing this, because we've seen far too many quote-unquote ministries, try to capitalize on the human emotion and the general collective good that God has still allowed to rest on this globe and say, don't you care about that starving children? Don't you care about that need over here? Don't you care that the, the, that the church that you like on TV doesn't have enough gold columns behind this, the preacher? Don't you care? Can't you give? Just call the number. And then it always comes with that promise of God's going to repay you now more than you even give up. This, this, God still expects his people to be balanced and judicious. That we would go about this wisely, not just being drawn into something. He's so right. Here you go. Then you wake up the next day going, what have I done? Oh, you're right. Here are the keys to my car. How am I going to get home? I didn't think about this. There are times where we make moves that the Holy Spirit makes so clear to us. There are times where we, we react to what we're sensing and feeling in the need of the moment and we're calculating in the back of our mind going, I don't think the numbers are going to add up, Lord, but it's still yours anyway, so take it. There are times where we are called to do that in our maturity, but it is not every time. What we said at the beginning was that this would be a thing that happens out of maturity and maturity comes prepared. Balanced and judicious, still of our free will rather than arm twisting and manipulation. But it is also humble and private. There is, yes, this thing that we should be examples to one another, that we should be inspired by the works and the faithfulness of other people. We are just preparing a devotional for this coming week for a devoted faith on this topic out of Paul's words in Philippians 3. There's certainly room for that, but the reality is, is that, is that most of our giving, if not, dare I say, all, should be really private and should be really humble. Churches can, can, can tell stories over and over and over again about those that were the, the biggest donors and the ones who were doing so well and how everybody around them knew it. That isn't what Jesus has ever encouraged, taught, or exemplified. On our worship team, uh, uh, I know uh, Gus still can, uh, carries this out forward and everything. We used to have this running joke in our practices and stuff that you have to practice for spontaneity. And as weird as that sounds, you know, you're thinking, you see all these bands on the, on the big stages. And it's like, wow, they just kind of go with the flow. And well, yeah, they work at that. That spontaneous stuff that we sometimes see uh, is a result so often of, of, of diligent practice. God's people, when it comes to being willing and able to spontaneously react to the need of the moment, is going to take some setup in our lives. It's going to take some preparation. 
You and I, if we continue to, to build up our credit debts and we continue to buy all the best of everything that we think we have, we've not built any margin into our life and then we expect to be able to react. If God really wants me to be able to do this, he'll make a way. If God really wants me to be able to do this, he'll strike me in the most emotional way in the moment. But what he really wants for us to do is practice and prepare to be spontaneous. Being wishful about giving to the Lord's mission isn't the same as actually doing so. Again, like we said at the outset, we don't get points for good intention. Kingdom investment takes determination. Again, this is not something that we will have nailed down. This is my second point in all of this, is that you and I will not be the full expression of our desired kingdom, Jesus, self overnight. And you say, what does that mean? I don't know. I don't even like the way it's worded. Let me explain it this way. Again, we have a caricature in our mind of who we think we should be. Or we have this compelling vision even perhaps of Jesus kind of saying, you're going in this direction. And so often we kind of say, well, if I can't be there now, I'm not really going to try. Let's just say, and this isn't a message about whether or not 10% still is true or if we can, any of those kinds of things. Do we think that our giving is not the same as every other area of spiritual growth in our lives? Let's just say you have a terrible potty mouth. You're a swear, you cuss like it was a sailor. Is that the one? Poor sailors always get the comparisons of being the worst talkers and we say as you come to christ he's going to start working in areas practical areas like your speech he's going to sweeten your tone up other people in public are going to like being around you more because you're going to stop kind of going in those crude kind of harsh places with your speech and your language now those of us that are working with this person that we would call discipling this person would we expect the very next day that those habits wouldn't still ring true that there would never be any slip-ups. I see it all the time in counseling. I see this slow progression of the things that plague them are getting less and less and less. And so when they start saying like, oh, I can't believe I still do that, I, ha- I get to point out, you're not doing it as much as you did before. Why wouldn't we take the inverse of this and say when it comes to our giving, when it comes to living charitably, generously, maybe perhaps more spontaneous or available to the work of the Lord, why wouldn't we say let's start somewhere? It's, it's my conviction that the more we talk about a percentage, there, there's two things that happen with this. If, if, and and I'm, not to, I'm not trying to make it sound like the percentage isn't in the Bible. It clearly is. And it's a worthy debate to wrestle with. But the problem with the human heart is once you give me the bare minimum, I may take it. I I might feel crushed by it because I'm nowhere near it, so I won't do anything. If I'm going to be guilty, might as well be guilty of the whole thing. At least that way I can keep a few bucks in my pocket. That's quite a temptation. Sorry to admit that out loud. Or I'm doing the 10%. Get off my back. God's got enough of what I'm doing. Do you see how the human heart, because of where it lives, can manipulate this idea and almost overfixate on this thing called a percentage? It's always been about our hearts. And why wouldn't we say, I'm a one percenter right now. And, and, and I'm praying and planning and, and moving towards being a two or a three or whatever. The reality is, when it comes to what we would call the storehouse, it's no longer the temple, but it's the church and it's a ministry that we run. The reality is, is we believe that the church should be and can be easily propelled with a lot of people doing the little they can instead of a few people doing a ton. 
The reality is we don't get overly worked up about the few people that can do the ton. I don't even know who those people are. You and I need to exercise this like any other faith muscle that the Lord is calling us to do. We can start somewhere. So let's wrap this up. Giving out of a sense of mere duty or obligation benefits a lot of other people, but it really only does that temporarily. It's not sustainable. Guilt, arm twisting, all that. Then I got to find new suckers that I can get in front of and say, you really need to give to the Lord. It's not the way this goes. Giving from a kingdom focus benefits everyone, including ourselves when we're giving for a sustained period of time. This is how we want to frame this whole area of the stewardship of our lives here at our church. If we neglect the teaching on giving to the work of God, what we're really doing is neglecting one of the most profound areas of our our Christian testimony of our discipleship path because our hearts and our minds are, are encased in this area of our finance way more than we realize. Jesus' whole ministry was a demonstration of giving up that which costs the most to gain something of greater value in return. Now, honestly... This is a little out of place for the time of year that we're in. And, and it has little to do with holly and, and dr- dressing a tree and all those kinds of things. And of course, for us, we want to hear more about the point of the manger and how it leads to death on a cross and then the res- resurrection of new life and all of those things. And, and that's all there. But this is really what giving is all about. Giving is a demonstration. It isn't the thing that just makes us feel good. It isn't just the thing that makes us feel connected to something bigger than us. It does all of those things. But what giving is, is it's a demonstration of everything that was, that was playing out in the manger. And then those 33 years until the time of his sacrifice and even more pointedly in the sacrifice of his own life. Jesus traded in everything that rightly belonged to him just to be born in that manger just to live in human skin, just to be our perfect sacrifice. And so every time you and I give, even the stuff that we kind of go, I'm not sure I can do this, or I had something else in mind, and eh, every time we're there, we get an opportunity to mimic and mirror and demonstrate the charitable grace of Jesus Christ as he became born of a virgin for you and for me. Would you please stand and join me in closing in prayer? So ask the Lord to do these things in our hearts and our minds that he is leading us to do and, uh, and move forward into the Christmas season. Lord God, I want to thank you, Father, for bringing us together this morning. I thank you, Lord, for your word. I, I thank you, Lord, for your timing, not mine. I pray, Lord, that um, each and every one of us, that we would pay particular attention to the needs around us going into this season. Lord, there are so many times where we are really wise about these things. We look for what is the real need. We look for those that are perhaps trying to pull the wool over our eyes. And we're going through all of those things. Lord, you've given us minds to engage in this process. Help us not to neglect them. Help us not to just react strictly by emotion. But also, Lord, I pray you'd help us not to just treat this like an intellectual exercise. That there are things that we will lose that we may not feel we ever get back on this earth. We don't know. But Lord, because we have a home waiting for us in heaven, all of the promise and reward that comes with that, this earth that we live in is not what we live for. 
So help us, Lord, to sacrificially detach ourselves from the entrapments of this earth and give ourselves more over to your spirit in all of these areas. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.